Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard, the nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough. I reckon you can do this. You know, I believe you're going to get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it literally nearly took my life. But we, we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers, in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at ended.org.au. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Meg McCabe with me. Now, Meg is a Carolyn Coston Institute certified eating disorder recovery coach based in Denver, Colorado. She is the founder and CEO of the Recovery Collective, a global and online eating disorder recovery community focused on healing together alongside peers and professionals, making recovery a less lonely place to be. She is also the host of Full and Thriving, an eating disorder recovery podcast, which provides listeners with free recovery education, resources and tools to encourage those with eating disorders to take action towards healing and reach full recovery. Thank you so much for joining me today, Meg. It's such a pleasure to have you with me. You're very welcome. Thank you so much, Millie. Now, I would like to begin with you giving our listeners a bit of an insight into your own journey with an eating disorder. Mm. Wow, it's so funny because I can start this story in so many different ways. And every year I gain more insight looking back at my recovery journey, right? And what contributed to it and how it started. And for me, I would really say that a few things culminated into the perfect storm. So first of all, I was a high achieving perfectionist. And I think that's very common for many of the listeners. And I know you are the same way, but I was high achieving perfectionist throughout high school. I also um, had an identical twin, which actually is a risk factor to having an eating disorder. So I was constantly being compared to my identical twin sister. And then, you know, looking back, and I was not aware of this at the time, but I was raised in a household where negative emotion was not really, I wouldn't say it wasn't allowed to be expressed, but the culture in the household was, we are always happy and we do not show our negative emotion. So when I was in high school going through challenges with school and like having crushes on boys and having all this pressure to get into college, I didn't know what to do with the negative emotion. I really had no idea how to identify 
negative emotion or express it or cope with it. And that was really the crux of my experience looking back. Um, and then the other factor that really contributed to my eating disorder was this attachment to the thin ideal and thinness equating to worthiness and value and being special. So I was really magnetized to becoming this high fashion model. And I kind of roll my eyes because I can't believe I aspired to be this runway model. It was during the America's Next Top Model era, which was extremely toxic. So I was constantly watching that show. And I don't know if you remember this, Millie, but they would show the girls' measurements on mm-hmm. the TV. Oh, yeah. I remember, honey. I was right there watching it with you. I was just watching it a little old New Zealand. But I remember, I just remember watching glued to it, would re-watch and re-watch reruns of it. Um, and the, gosh, it was toxic. So toxic. Yes. And the thing that is interesting is that I'm the same height as a lot of those girls. So it was like, literally, I could compare my body exactly to theirs. And so I was constantly measuring myself, comparing their stats to mine. They would even put weights on that show. And so I became like really obsessed with my body and thinking, oh, I can become a high fashion model because my body matches the bodies that I'm seeing on TV. And of course, like it didn't start out that way. At first, it became something I could strive to. And then I tried to obtain it. I actually ended up getting a modeling contract because I sold my soul to the eating disorder and fashion to get there. So those were the factors. The story can, you know, go in any direction, but that's how we can preface all of it. (laughs) Mm, Wow. So what, what ended up happening after you got the modeling contract? So I moved to New York City. I, and bless my parents, they let me live there on my own at age 17 and 18, (laughs) like super young. I moved to a modeling apartment. And first of all, this was the 2000s, like mid to late 2000s. So curve models wasn't a thing, plus size models, not a thing. Everyone was striving for this thin ideal. So just living in the model apartment was extremely toxic. We would weigh ourselves every day. We w- I would keep tabs on what everyone was eating, constantly Googling ourselves to see what the chat rooms are saying about us in Fashion Week. And oh my God, it was, it was really intense. Um, so I lived there just for a few months. The eating disorder was raging. Um, I had anorexia with a binge purge subtype. So constantly sneaking around the model's apartment, trying to use behaviors, um, walking excessively around Manhattan, just sort of out of a byproduct of the job as well, because I was running to castings and so my weight dropped. Um, It was just this very intense few months of my life and uh, I could go on forever, but essentially they sent me to, and I mean my agents, they sent me to a place to get my um, a facial done and they actually burned my face. <laughs> and I was so obsessed with this success of being this model and I had worked so hard to get this body. 
And then suddenly my face was burned by some weird dermatologist facial, high-tech facial. And essentially my eating disorder went into total chaos, complete. I had felt like I lost total control. I started binge eating, couldn't couldn't really keep my rigidity around food anymore. And I started gaining weight rapidly, using behaviors right and left and quit modeling and had to move back home to basically, I didn't go to treatment, but to see a therapist and a dietitian and do the whole outpatient thing. So I quit modeling almost immediately and focused at home on recovery. And I did not go to college. All of my peers were in college. I had decided to skip school. Um, and then essentially I wasn't in school and I wasn't modeling. So I was at home focused on recovery. <laughs> it's a lot. Who, uh, it, yeah. <laughs> it is a lot, but hey, I think you know, any, any eating disorder story, I mean, there's so many twists, turns, like where do you start, where do you end? It's, and they're all a lot, you know, I think every, we're all, our journeys are all different, but then there's so many commonalities and uh, they're all intense in their own ways. Mm-hmm, exactly, yes. I always like to ask people to describe what it's like to live in the midst of an eating disorder you know for Mm. anybody who's listening to this podcast today and have never experienced an eating disorder how would you describe it how does it feel so I love this question first of all amazing question so how I would describe it like mentally physically and emotionally I would say mentally for me, it was an obsession. It's just constant obsession with food. For me, that was the number one indicator of a problem because I could not stop thinking about food. I would ask myself, how much of my brain is focused on food right now? And it would always be like 90% food, (laughs) you know? So there is this mental obsession with food There's also this, um, physically, I would define it as control. So I was constantly controlling my body. And then spiritually, I was completely disconnected from myself, from my soul, from my, you know, the big picture in life. And so that's how I would describe it on those three levels. Mm. That feeling of disconnection just becomes so rudimentary. It's just how you operate, right? And I think it's one of the biggest things in recovery I was so floored by was redeveloping that connection and realizing just how disconnected I had been. I hadn't realized Mm. the level of... It's like you're not even you're not even present in any way. You're just living in this eating disorder bubble in your head, severed from your soul, completely and utterly. Absolutely. I was kind of walking a walking robot, I think. Like mm. I hate to say that in the fashion industry they call you a hanger because you're just literally there to show the clothes. And I really did feel like kind of like an object, like there was no soul there. Meg had left the building. It was just focusing on my body and food. And then, you know, I did 
reconnect to my my soul. And I actually attribute recovery to that. I don't know how connected I ever was because I think I constantly just growing up just did what everyone told me I need to do. I tried to be a good girl. I tried to behave. I so you know, looking back at childhood, although I was a good girl and I had a really loving family, I feel like I don't think I was really disconnected. I don't think I was truly connected with myself until I started recovery. I know that maybe that's not true, but I just remember not really feeling emotions very deeply. Mm. Mm. I don't know. Were there moments where you felt utterly hopeless and like, you know, I don't know how I'll ever get out of this? Absolutely. I definitely felt hopeless. Um, I would say the modeling experience really was tied into the hopelessness for some reason. Um, When things got out of control and I had to throw that dream out the window in a sense because I was no longer the right size for the runway, I felt really hopeless in like, okay, I worked so hard for this and I'm losing control of this situation. How do I get back to it, right? So there was definitely a level of hopelessness there, but I also truly deeply respect my younger self because there was also a lot of wisdom and a lot of hope throughout and I don't know where that came from but I look at my younger self and I'm very amazed by her spirit truly truly Mm, mm. keep fighting (laughs) just keep fighting didn't give up (laughs) yeah the wisdom was there I always had a little bit of a why like a wisdom inside of me so even in the hopeless Mm. moments I was like there's gotta be there's gotta be some way out of this I just had mm. to figure it out. Mm. Crack the code. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How did you overcome the fear of gaining weight? Oof. So I think everyone's journey with their relationship with weight is different. Um, so fear of gaining weight for me I would say the first step to overcoming my fear of gaining weight, and I think many athletes and dancers and maybe actresses can relate to this because I was in a career that kind of forced me into this body size. Um, So I had to remove myself from that career. And in doing so, I readjusted my body standards So you know how you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. I no longer associated with the fashion people who are extremely fat phobic and body obsessed. That's like people, I kind of think of it like the people who go to the gym all the time and their gym culture is really into being a certain size or looking a certain way. I've made the choice to leave a toxic culture that was extremely fat phobic. And by doing that, it was a lot easier for me to adjust the standards I held for my body. So that was really step one, which was, I would say, a major piece of the battle. And 
I would also equate that stage to maybe populating your Instagram feed with a healthier perspective of actual body acceptance accounts and body liberationist accounts. Like if we were to say that today, like that's another way to go about healing your relationship with weight restoration. Um, And then also I did a very extensive, at least internal cost benefit analysis of the weight gain. And of course you're holding on to this thin ideal you want to stay this size. You're gripping onto this size. And in reality, I knew that I was sacrificing way too much of myself. And so I did that cost-benefit analysis and there was a lot of practical stuff on there. Like I wasn't getting my period. I was, I mean, using horrible behaviors. I was Um, obsessed with food, like all of those costs were Mm. not like intellectually, I could pull myself back and say, this size is not worth what I'm paying for it. You know, so the cost benefit analysis was extremely helpful. I did a pro con list. Like I was, I I guess I was intellectualizing it. And then you really were. (laughs) I was. And then another thing I will say with the weight restoration piece was, and you will laugh, I don't know if you experienced this too, but I created my own word for set point theory. (laughs) I don't even know if I don't even know if set point theory existed at this time. Um, but I called it my biological realm. I love that. Well, that's, I I feel like that's much more intellectual than my happy place, which is what I call it. My biological realm. Okay. I'm I'm adapting that. I'm taking that one. All right. I'll credit you. So I remember I was like maybe 20 years old walking around and being like, "Mm, I'm constantly fighting my body. My body really wants to be a different size. I can feel it. This is not sustainable at all. The size I'm in is, Mm. I wish it was sustainable, but I can feel that it's not. And so I called that my body's biological realm because I was looking around and seeing all these models And some of them, they didn't have eating disorders. They were just naturally born into that genetic realm, into their own biological realm, which we know is their own set point. And I was trying to justify it. So I didn't know, I didn't have the words for set point theory. And um, for those of you listening, set point theory is basically your body's kind of genetic predisposition to happily exist in a weight range, right? Um... And it's different for everyone. And so I knew that, but I was putting my own words to it. And so that kind of forced me to accept that, you know, my body's not going to be doing what I want it to do because of who, what my body, what I was born with, right? I can't keep fighting nature. And so that was a very big thing. But I do want to acknowledge also, Millie, that I have had thin privilege my entire life. 
And I was able to go from living in a thin body with anorexia to a thin body recovered. And so it was, I felt safe in the world and I had validation around me that my size was still quote unquote accepted by others. So I just want to hold space for the people who might have a much more difficult acceptance journey than I do, right? Um, So those who maybe have a thin body with anorexia, but they're recovering into a larger body that's no longer deemed thin, quote, like in the world, or maybe not as acceptable by diet culture. Mm. And so I do want to say that I even recognized that I was my, (laughs) wow, my younger self recognized that there was a part of me that was still recovering to a safe zone, quote, quote, you know, I I say all of this in quotes, um, because I wasn't facing fat phobia in the world, I wasn't going to be treated any differently. Um, And so yes, I bring that up, because I think it's important to say. It's so, so important. And, and you say that learning to accept your body and restore a healthy relationship with food is a true test of resilience, strength, and self-love. How did yes. you come to a place of just utter acceptance with your body? I think it was a lot of the components I just shared, just recognizing mm. that I was fighting against my body. Like I could feel that there was that internal conflict happening and it was me versus my body. I knew it had a mind of its own. (laughs) And that's what I think I got lucky in a way because I just really felt like there was no way I could really beat the nature of my body. And so I had to, I was processing that and working on accepting that. So essentially accepting what I, what I must accept in order to heal. Because it, without accepting my body's natural size, I'd have to keep living in that obsession day in and day out. And after doing that for, I say, I would say I had my eating disorder for about five years. After doing that for five years, I was so tired of obsessing. It did not, the mental energy was not worth it anymore. So I also accepted my body because I was resigning and surrendering to um, the, you know, just letting go. I had to let go of this obsessive control um, and it was no longer worth it to me. So again, that cost benefit analysis Mm. was there. Yeah. And in recovery, it can often be really helpful to consider how your relationship with food is like your relationship with yourself. How did recovery change your relationship with yourself? I think this is such an amazing question as well, um, because I'm still using my recovery to, to like, I guess heal my relationship with myself and life. Like, this is so great. So my relationship with food um, 
was very chaotic, I guess. Like at the height of my eating disorder, it turned into a very chaotic relationship with food. I was purging, you know, and I was restricting. I was kind of stuck in that cycle. And essentially I was using that behavior to feel a sense of relief, right? Pressure was being, I was putting pressure on myself. I was feeling pressure from life and pressure to obtain this body size. And then I would do something wrong or do something I was ashamed of or feel a connection or feel an emotion that didn't feel comfortable. And I would lean on this behavior for relief. And I found throughout life, I was constantly in other ways, basically I called it life bulimia. (laughs) I would just let go of things for a sense of relief. Once things got hard, I would just quit. (laughs) Seriously. That's what I noticed. I, it was, it was still like, instead of sitting with the emotions of the food I just ate, I would just use a behavior and kind of instant gratification, kind of like, that's how I feel better now. And in life, I was doing the same exact thing. Things got hard. I would peace out. Relationship got hard. I would let it go. Job got hard. Bye. Don't need it anymore. It was constantly seeking relief. And so it wasn't until I was studying for the Carolyn Costin coaching certification where I came across the question, how is your eating disorder related to your life? You know, what I think there's a better way of phrasing that question, but mm. that's when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm, like, I'm constantly seeking relief by letting things go and purging, purging life, right? Mm. <laughs> not really mm. in a, not really in a, conscious, aware way where I'm letting go because I was consciously bringing something else into my life. It was just this very unaware action to seek feeling better. So once I realized that, I started figuratively sitting with it instead of turning to that relief seeking. So when things Mm. got hard, and that's what helped me build my, my coaching business, was remembering, I need to change this. I can't just continue letting go of projects or visions or plans because they got hard or there was a bump in the road. I have to hold them with me and stick it out. And that was exactly how I healed my, you know, bulimia essentially was holding holding it down and surfing the urge as they say. Um, and feeling what it feels like to sit with something uncomfortable. And that's what I've been practicing now for the past several years is sitting with things when they're uncomfortable, really processing, do I want to continue this or do I consciously let it go? Is this worth it? And I found it's helped me so much in my life. And I think that was a long-winded way of saying all of it, but essentially it's been such a great question in my life because recovery has taught me that some things are worth sitting with (laughs) yes definitely definitely (laughs) can you share with our listeners uh, you know a few mantras or affirmations that helped you in your recovery Mm -hmm. yes 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 I can so I have I'm going to 
cheat. I have some written down. <laughs> I um, love but, this. <laughs> um, but two of them, they're both connected to worth. Because when I was going through recovery, I didn't realize the massive undertones, right? I just knew that it was a very body-centric thing. I didn't know about the emotions. I didn't know about, um, you know, the life bulimia that I just explained. I was just going through it. And so for me, it was all about the body. So during that time, I was focused on mantras related to that. So one was, I am more than my body, right? Because I was constantly connecting my body to my value and being special and important and so just reminding myself that I'm more than my body. I am a soul too. <laughs> the soul is here for the actual living. And then the other mantra that I was really connected to was my weight does not define my worth because I was very centered around weight and the lower the weight, the more good I felt about myself. And as you know, using external references like the number on the scale to feel good is not a sustainable way of actually feeling good. So just reminding myself, my weight does not define my worth. Worthiness comes from within. It's probably another really good mantra to use, uh, but those were two yes. that really got me through it. <laughs> it's interesting because I use both of those in my recovery as well, actually. Oh, wow. Mantra <laughs> arsenal. Mm -hmm. Um now, you're the founder of the Amazing Recovery Collective, which is an incredible global eating disorder recovery community that I'm honored to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Now, can you tell me what led you to starting the collective and what you set out to achieve with it? Yes. So the collective was actually founded during the pandemic, which I love this story because everyone will one day say, what were you doing during the pandemic? And I'm saying, I'm building my like most, my pride and joy, you know, the mem the eating disorder recovery collective is just, oh, it's, it's my, my thing. But anyway, it was during the pandemic when we were all completely isolated and eating disorders yeah. were at a soaring high, right? It was just, I don't know about you, but during that time, my referrals went through the roof. With, through the, uh, I was literally about to say that through the, yeah, absolute right. epidemic of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, like I need to make recovery accessible to everyone because I can't take everyone on one-on-one. -on -one. It's impossible. I'm My roster is full, right? And so I was thinking, how do I make this accessible and bring people together in a community so that's where I came up with the idea of this membership-based model of healing where people can come together. It's a, it's a lower monthly fee. They come together. They are given basically a class schedule that they can participate in every single month. So there's guest workshops like you've been a guest. Uh, Carolyn Costin's been a guest. We're going to have Dr. Jennifer Gaudiani in October, which is really exciting. Uh, we do peer support. We have nourish and learn sessions with an e eating disorder dietitian. We do yoga. The list goes on. I lead group coaching. And so 
I created this so that people had a resource and an outlet to build community and also get the resources they need in a virtual setting. So mm. yeah, it was just, it came together. It was a, it was hard work, but it was very needed for the time. And also thinking back to my own recovery, I was so alone. I, I didn't talk about it with anyone. I don't, it's not, I remember your story. You're very open about your eating disorder with your, your mom, at least from what I mm. heard. Mm. And I, you know, I, I was very elusive about my eating disorder. I didn't really call it an eating disorder and I didn't really have anyone to talk to directly about it because I was so ashamed. And I kind of also created this because after connecting with people who have also been through recovery, I just realized these individuals just have so much to learn from each other. And I never had that. Not because I... Mm didn't want it it just wasn't available Mm. well I encourage any listeners out there who haven't looked into the recovery collective to get online and have a look at it because it is incredible Um, I would encourage you to become a member there are so many incredible benefits that you know Meg has just outlined there and it is truly truly just a wonderful supportive um, space so definitely check it out if you haven't already Now, I want to ask you, why do you believe that recovery coaching is such a game changer for eating disorder recovery? (laughs) Why do I believe this? Well, recovery coaching is the gap that needed to be filled. That's what I always say. (laughs) Yeah, it's the missing link. It's that gap. Yeah. It's the gap. I remember going to therapy, sitting there talking about my eating disorder when I wanted to. You know, sometimes I'd yeah. distract, distract, distract. <laughs> so I didn't have to talk Run about circles it. circles around those therapists. Let's see if they'll pull me into line. Maybe not. <laughs> exactly. So when I felt like it, I would talk about my eating disorder briefly. It was never focused, right? It was whatever I wanted mm. to say in therapy. I ran the show over there. And so- yeah, of course we did. Like, who's, who's going to tell us what to do? No way. <laughs> so I guess the gap was I would leave therapy and be like, okay, that was really helpful for processing, but what action do I take? And I never really had an answer to that. So when I found out about coaching, I was ecstatic because I was like, wow, coaching is all about goal setting, setting challenges for yourself you know, hitting markers that you, you and your coach set to make sure you're making progress. And so that's really what coaching is. It's, it's filling mm. in the gap. It's making sure you take the action. And that's really where the change happens. You can listen to all the podcasts, read all the books, go to therapy, go to a dietitian. But if you're not taking action, you're not going to make the change. Mm. And so that's why I love coaching. Mm. And you're right, it's that action multiple times a day and it's having that support there and someone holding your hand through it and being like, I get it. And yes, this is hard right now, but we're continuing to do it because ultimately these are your values. These are your goals. Let's go. Teamwork. Yes. Yes. Teamwork. Connecting to the big picture, connecting to the goals. 
Exactly, exactly. We are so lucky to do the work that we do. I mean, honestly, I think I was saying to Carol on the other day, I'm just so grateful for her paving the way for us to be able to do this because it is so fulfilling. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, it's intense. But when you see people find their light again, there's just no better feeling. Mm, I completely agree. It is the most rewarding, fulfilling work. And essentially, we're just helping people break free from their Mm -hmm. own internal shackles in a way. I know that's like a scary image, but it's It's so so true. true. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Mm -hmm. Now, in a recent episode of your amazing, full and thriving podcast, you said instant gratification comes from a place of impulsivity that is not going to move you forward in the recovery process. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Yes. So it kind of is related to my whole life bulimia thing I was talking about. So when you reach for a behavior instead of coping with your emotions, right? When you reach for a behavior, that is you seeking instant gratification. That's you seeking the easy way out. It's, I feel uncomfortable. I'm going to numb myself with this behavior or get a dopamine hit with this behavior, feel better. That's exactly what instant gratification is. It's like when you, you know, see all these likes on Instagram, you feel good about yourself. It's like, oh, instant gratification. It's like, that's what using a behavior is. It's just turning externally to feel better when something is hard. And it's not necessarily you're actually feeling better you're just avoiding pain, right? By, by using this behavior. So that's what I mean. It's very impulsive to use a behavior instead of sit with your emotions and Mm -hmm. do something like a healthy coping skill instead. So I like to think of it, behaviors are instant gratification, right? And, and that's not necessarily a good thing. We want to be in it for the long term, which is delayed gratification. We want to be the people who can say, I had the big picture in mind. I'm doing this for my future self. I don't, you know, I don't want to be this cheap hit of, oh, I'm going to use my eating disorder behavior. I want to surpass the temptation to use this behavior, go for my long-term self, my future self. That's who I'm working for. That's who I'm the most aligned with. And that's why it's a long-term delayed gratification. Um, But I'm getting really fired up because I do care about this. And for me, Mm. honoring, honoring my future self is what I'm here to do. I, I think Mm. when we're sitting here trying to make our, always get these dopamine hits, we are mm, cheating ourselves out of maybe something bigger and better for us. So if you can surf the urges and recognize it's going to be uncomfortable, but down the road it will pay off. It's that's what we're hope, that's what we're aiming for. Does that did I mm. It's so important. You have you've explained it perfectly. Yeah. yeah. And I completely I completely agree with you. Yeah. Now, in recovery, why is it so important? <laughs> Say that again. 
In recovery, why is it so important to understand why we are holding on so tightly to our eating disorder? Ooh, yes. Well, if we understand why we're holding on to our eating disorder, we can uncover what our unmet needs are, right? So our eating disorder is serving us in some way. It's it's meeting some sort of need. There is an unintended benefit, quote, benefit to having an eating disorder. That's why we hang on to them. They're fulfilling a need. So it's really important to uncover what that is specifically for you. And that might be feeling a sense of identity. It might be, you might be clinging onto your eating disorder because um, you're afraid of losing control or maybe it gives you a sense of control. You might be clinging to your eating disorder because you want to feel special, right? Those are all perceived benefits from clinging so tightly. And so the way you want, you let go of that is recognize, okay, can I meet these needs in a different way? Is there a healthier way? In a way far to, more beneficial way. <laughs> is there a healthier way for me to feel special? I know for me, I wanted to feel special. You want to know what made me feel special? Becoming an entrepreneur. It was a much healthier way. I was like, I'm doing something different and unique and fun and I'm, you know, I'm not doing the typical life. And that, that satisfied that need, right? Where I think, yes. and thankfully I've actually been pretty balanced with it. Um, but I want everyone to just listen, everyone listening to just think about, okay, how does my eating disorder serve me? And can I find that need in a different way, in a healthier way? And that's really the, mm. the trick. It's such an important question to ask yourself in recovery. So, so important. Mm-hmm. Now, transitioning from a meal plan to intuitive eating can be such a tricky part of recovery. What would be your top tips for listeners out there who are in the midst of trying to do this? And how do you know if you're being intuitive or you're being gaslit by your eating disorder Ooh! oh my gosh I feel like we could have a whole entire podcast on this I know <laughs> but I'm challenging you to succinctly give my listeners a little bit of a nugget of wisdom mm, okay so I like to think of a meal plan like learning to play an instrument so I played violin growing up did you ever play an instrument Millie I did. I played the piano until it got too hard and I had to do exams and then I gave it up. A bit of life bulimia right there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So I played violin growing up. And when you learn how to play an instrument, I think of it as learning the basics of the meal plan, right? You got to first focus on three meals a day, three snacks, building up to that. That's like playing basic you know, level one violin, you're like, okay, I'm learning the music, just going to play it as best as I can. That's what it's like when Mm. you're learning to stick to a meal plan. Once you're completing the meal plan regularly and you're feeling confident and your dietitian has led you to a place where it's sufficiently nourishing and you're feeling, you know, your hunger and fullness has been restored and you're feeling good and you It's like, if we bring it back to that violin analogy, that's when you can start 
adding some intonation and some musicality to the violin, to the music, right? And that's how I think of that transition. It's like, you are now ready to add intuition to the meal plan and eventually let it go. And just like, if you're learning a skill, you get so good, you add that musicality in there, you add your own personal style, you sprout wings and you become this beautiful musician. It's just like that with the the meal plan. Eventually you become so confident with the, say the sheet music, you no longer need the sheet music, which is like kind of the meal plan. You can eventually just transition onto being a skilled, talented musician, AKA intuitive eater. <laughs> um, well, that's how I like to see it. And I think that can be helpful. I think that's such a fabulous analogy. I love using metaphors, analogies like that in recovery because I think it can be really helpful when your brain's really busy to be able to just stop for a second, take a breath and just for a moment think about things in a different way and shift those perspectives. And it's something that I know through NLP is just such an incredibly powerful tool to help us change neural pathways. Mm, So true. I love a good metaphor. It can really help clarify confusing things at times. Yeah. Mm. Confusing concepts. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Recently, I've been having discussions with some of my clients around mental hunger. Let's talk about that and why it's so important to respond to it rather than ignore it. And for those of you who aren't familiar with this term, mental hunger is having the desire to eat despite not having any physical feelings of hunger? Okay, so mental hunger for me is so important because it actually is a really good way of practicing connecting to what you want. It's so, I like to, like I would say mental hunger, so you're thinking about that thing you want, that food you want, And if you don't satisfy that need, you're essentially denying yourself of something you desire. So I find when you honor mental hunger, you're actually honoring yourself and it starts to feel really good. And it starts to be sort of fun to say, hey, I really want this food. And to be honest, when you honor your mental hunger, you start to feel really satisfied. That's what I found is the mental hunger is what kind of helps you connect with satisfaction. Like what what sounds good? What feels pleasurable in the moment? And so sometimes, um, sometimes just mental hunger is is the thing that can connect you to yourself in a way. And it's way more, it's just very gratifying to actually listen to yourself. It sure is. Yeah, <laughs> One it really of the is. Beautiful things about recovery. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it truly is. Now let's talk about your three keys to planning mm. recovery challenges because I know many of our listeners would find them so beneficial. Mm, yes. So I have three. Well, honestly, there are many keys, but I will stick to three. So the first one is baby steps, like. Let's meet you where you're at, right? We're not, I know so many of us are ambitious, high achievers and they come to coaching and they want to say, okay, I'm eating very little, but I'm going to be eating my full meal plan by tomorrow, right? It's like, 
you're taking a giant leap, which is almost too far for a short period of time. And that will burn you out. If you try to set these big lofty goals and you're not meeting yourself where you are, you will be feeling very burnt out and essentially maybe sabotage your recovery at, you know, at that point. So what I say is baby steps first, meet yourself where you're at, find something small that's just a little step forward in the right direction. And then step two, the key to add on to that is make it very clear and concise. So, you know, I'm going to have a bagel two to three times this week, right? And I'm going to add cream cheese freely to it, right? That might be your your goal. And so we have a number range so you don't feel so scared, right? We got some flexibility there. Two to three times this week. And um, maybe you're going to, you can go as so far as to planning the specific days with your coach if you want. You can even say, I'm going to text you a photo of these, you know, of my food just so you know I've had it for that accountability piece. So we're kind of building here. So it's baby steps, clear and concise. And then one thing I think we don't think about a lot, so I wanted to make sure I say this, it's totally appropriate to add in self-care after a challenge. And I think that's something that could be a new idea for some listeners here is when you do set a recovery challenge, think about how you're going to take care of yourself after the fact. Because it's going to be an emotional upheaval, most likely. You're probably going to be super anxious and stressed and, you know, feel your body might feel really tense. Um, And so how are you going to take care of yourself after? What kind of self-care do you want to engage in? Is it going to be lighting some candles and reading a book? Is it going to be calling your grandma? Is it going to be a bubble bath? Whatever it is for you to like reconnect with yourself, calm yourself down, self-soothe, whatever it may be. I definitely think that's something that's often overlooked. Mm. Yeah, you're right. It is overlooked and it is something that should not be because the power of self-care is is immense and it's something that in recovery I don't think a lot of people do nearly enough of Mm, so true and that's why I like to bring it up because I think when we think about goal setting we think we're done once the once we do the challenge we're like okay I can check it off the box but we really do need to talk about how you're going to take care of yourself after because that is the residual experience, right? You're still kind of in that, even after the eating, there's still Mm. stuff going on after the fact. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you hold hope for in terms of the future for eating disorder treatment? Ooh, well, I really hope there, at least, honestly, universally, it seems to be a heavy expense. I know in the States, it's out of control. Very fine. It's a very financially difficult place to be. So my hope is that something changes because I really feel for those who have to go to say residential or inpatient and even piecing together an outpatient team requires so many hands on deck. 
and they all require payment. So my hope is that something changes so that it can be more financially like possible for people out there. Having eating disorder recovery treatment is a privilege and it should be a right, right? It is everyone's right, but it's not treated mm-hmm. like a right, right? It's, right now it's a privilege. Um, so exactly. that's something I really hope changes and that will take like major systemic change in a way. <laughs> I, I don't know mm-hmm. the blueprint mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, you and I both, it's, it's huge, needs to happen. And you're right, mm-hmm. it, it's, everyone should has a right to to treatment that mm-hmm. is compassionate and not punitive and it's individualized and yeah meet somewhere they're at I mean we could yes. go on and on there's so much there and it's it's really heartbreaking because it's such a complex illness right it's so mm. complex mm. and you know even just looking at psychology.com looking for a therapist there's so many therapists on there that just willy-nilly say they they specialize in eating disorders, but in reality, yeah, I treat this, this, and this, and oh yeah, I do eating disorders too. You know, yeah, it's just a little extra, little side thing, and yeah. they may not recognize it's like a bonus. it. Yeah, it's like I'm just gonna add that in. It's like a buzzword, right? They're yes. just creating their profile. And they put eating disorders as like a buzzword, but they're not actually specialized. So if anything, we need to make sure more people are specialized in eating disorder recovery and the people who claim that they are actually are sticking to like modern practices and like up-to-date practices on you know recovery because it changes too so Mm. yeah completely what has been the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you oh that's a really good one um my eating disorder recovery journey taught me the value of self-compassion. <laughs> That's definitely the most valuable thing because you go from being a high achieving perfectionist, but recovery is so messy that you can't do it in a perfectionist way. So I really learned that in order for me to mentally survive recovery, I needed self-compassion. And I don't mean self-compassion always has to sound like, oh, sweet little baby, you're so good. Like, don't worry, it'll all be fine. Like, I think I think some people get really annoyed with self-compassion because they think that's what it's supposed to sound like, which is not what my self-compassion sounds like. My self-compassion sounds like, it's okay. You did fine. That's fine. You're going to do okay. Like, it sounds like me having my own back. I'm just my own friend sticking up for myself. I was just going to say, what would you say to a friend? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so for me, it's always just providing myself a bigger context. Like, it's okay you feel this way. It makes sense you feel this way because of X, Y, and Z. Or don't compare yourself to that person because of all of these other things that make you different, right? It's just me being my own friend. That's really what self-compassion is. Um, So that was by far the most important thing. And then also flexibility, like being a flexible thinker, being able to roll with the punches. Because again, recovery is so messy that you're forced to learn these things. So 
I am now so flexible. I, I am, I am like, it is not, my life is good because I am so, I'm very flexible with life. I have a level head. I understand that things happen. I understand that things don't go well all the time. And so it's, it's so much nicer now living, <laughs> living post recovery, the gifts you get seriously, they're so valuable. Oh, hugely. So many <laughs> gifts. More than you can begin to imagine for those of you out there who are still stuck in the trenches. There are so many incredible gifts that I think no matter how long you've been in recovery, I still don't I still don't think I'll ever take some of them for granted because for so many years I wasn't free to to enjoy those gifts and to have those in my life. So yeah, there's lots mm-hmm waiting for you on the other side. So keep fighting for it. Yes. And there's a huge, when you recognize the gifts, you also have a huge appreciation for Mm. everything you've been through and for your own recovery itself. And I've never heard anyone say gifts that were these small, insignificant gifts. There are things like self-compassion and food freedom and patience and those are huge life skills and values that if you can really work towards in your recovery you will use for the rest of your life it's Mm, amazing and they impact and infiltrate every aspect of your life exactly yeah it's been recovery was the greatest gift it made me such a better person like a whole person that's what it made me yeah yeah in your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? The best ways people can support someone. Um, so first of all, I always think that it's really helpful to ask, do you need me to solve the problem or do you want me to listen? <laughs> right? Like ask your friend if they're coming you coming to you with an eating disorder problem, first check in with them and see what they need. Do you need to solve something for them, help them with something tangible, or do you need to, to listen to them? And that's always really helpful. Um, but also when it comes to helping a friend, think about what you're good at. You don't have to be their therapist. Maybe you're the friend who calls up insurance and does the the tedious tasks. Maybe you're the friend that drives them to a support group, right? It's like, think about who you are as a person and how you can fit into that person's care, you know, circle. And I think that's really important too, um, to think about. Um, And this always try to meet your friend where they're at and don't make any assumptions about them. I think that's also something that people tend to do when they have a friend in, who has an eating disorder. They're going to make all these assumptions, but you really don't know until you ask directly about what exactly they're going through. And also hold space for the fact you might not understand. It's so important, every single one of those. It's really, really important <laughs> yeah. advice. Can I say something too? Because I know many listeners are New Zealand, Australia on your podcast, look up mental health first aid. Are you aware of mental health first aid, Millie? Yes. I, 
honestly, I was a mental health first aid instructor for a few years and it is a very good course for people who are not trained in mental health. If you are, um, no clue what to do, just take one of those courses. You'll learn baseline about different types of, uh, mental health issues, how, you know, how to be supportive resources. It's a really good basic class and I wish everyone could be trained in it. So and it was founded in Australia, which is why I bring this up. Yes. Yeah. No, <laughs> and it's very, very sage advice. I completely agree with you. Yeah, it's such a great, it's a really amazing organization. Now, finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting the brave fight? Mm, words of wisdom. Mm, there are so, so many. Um... I would say my number one piece of advice is just have patience. (laughs) Just have patience with yourself and recognize that it might not be an easy journey and there's going to be ups and downs and expect that to happen and have patience with yourself throughout the process and just Recognize it could also take a lot longer than you think. I think that's, when I say patience, I know some people want to be recovered yesterday and they beat themselves up over how long it's taking. So patience is my most important piece of advice. It is so important. Hang in there, have patience, there is hope, and where there is a will, there is a way. You will get there. Thank you so much for joining me. You are just this wonderful light and I am so blessed to have you in my life and I cannot wait till the day we actually physically get to hug one another. Um, Hopefully that's not too long away now that the world (laughs) is starting to go back to normal. But I'm so grateful for everything that you bring to the eating disorder space and I'm not only with your coaching but with Recovery Collective. You truly are amazing and we are blessed to have you. Oh, Millie, I'm so honored to be on your show. And I just want to say thank you so much. And I can say the same for you. I've always looked up to you and what you do in this space. And um, you really have such a great impact on this community. And also your support in the Recovery Collective over the years has been so helpful. So I just want to say thank you. And I appreciate everything that you do as well. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.